Hello, and welcome to St. Paul's Growing Together, a Bible study podcast resource for the St. Paul's Lutheran Church and School in Bourbonnet, Illinois. Because we believe that studying God's Word is important, and that through our time together in God's Word, we grow in our faith in Jesus and our love for one another, we are offering you a chance to come grow with us through listening in on our Bible studies. We now join a Bible class on the Book of Acts, taught by our associate pastor, Mike Hanel. All right, we're still settling in a little bit, but I think we shall begin. Uh, we have a, a bigger angle table today than usual, but welcome our guests from the warm climates down south, Florida. Um, where were we? It's been a little bit. We took a small break last week as we uh, did something completely different, but now we're back, we're ready, and uh, only doing one chapter this week, uh, which is a little bit unusual. Not really, yeah. But it's, it's a full chapter, it's an important chapter, and there's a lot of stuff that's written on this. Acts 15 as kind of the centerpiece of the book of Acts. It is um, about a council, a meeting that takes place of the apostles, the, the pastors, the leaders there in Jerusalem. And it's not just the fact that it's a meeting that makes it important. It's the subject of the meeting. This is why it's so important. The issue that they are wrestling with is Gentiles. Are they a part of us or not? And if so, how? But it's even more than that. It's not just, are Gentiles part of us? Can they be like us? It really became an issue of salvation. So the most important question of all. It's, are Gentiles saved? And how are they saved? And the background for a lot of the people who are... are, having this conversation is that they grew up as Jews. They were born Jews, some of them Pharisees even. And then they heard about Jesus and they believed the message that Jesus is their savior, that Jesus came, he's the Messiah, he's the fulfillment of all of the scriptures. This is the one we've been waiting for. We have salvation, forgiveness through him. But they kept being Jews. They kept doing the things that they grew up doing, the the laws of Moses, the kosher rules about eating, cleanliness, all of that stuff. They, they, They just kept on doing that because that's who they were. And as Gentiles started to hear about Jesus, they come from a very different place. They don't have all of that background stuff. They weren't following the laws of the Torah. They were doing their own thing. But now they too believe that Jesus is the Lord, that Jesus is the one God who has come to bring salvation to all people. And so they believe that message. And we heard about that happening uh, with Cornelius. Cornelius was a a Gentile who was kind of interested in some of the the ways of Jews. Um, He he gave, he offered money on behalf of the, the Jewish God. He was interested, but didn't seem like he had gone the whole way. He wasn't circumcised. He didn't follow the laws of Moses. And so when Peter encountered him, uh, 
Peter was at first, I think, a little bit ambivalent to have any kind of association with this man. But remember, Peter had those visions, the dreams that God gave him of, hey, everything is clean that I call clean. And Peter realized that this wasn't just about the picnic that he saw before him. This was about people. And all people were clean, whom God called clean. That the message of Jesus was for all people, not just for Jews. And so after that, Peter went into the house of Cornelius, something he shouldn't do as a good Jew, because this was a Gentile's home. And Peter talked with him and shared the message of the gospel with them. And they believed that message and the Holy Spirit was given to them and they were baptized. And all of this helps Peter to see salvation is for everybody. And then after that, we talked about how in Antioch, there is this episode that just is kind of barely even touched on. It's not really highlighted about how the gospel was at first preached just to Jews, but then some people from Cyrene and Cyprus also proclaimed the message to Greeks, to, to either Gentiles or to Hellenized Jews. But the point is, it was breaking some of those social barriers. And then after that, we hear about how Paul comes back into the story and Paul brings the message out with Barnabas to Cyprus and to the area of Asia Minor, to Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And to all of these places, Paul and Barnabas go to the Jews, they go to the synagogues and proclaim the gospel, but they start getting opposition from some of the Jews. Yes, some Jews believed, but then there's opposition. And so Paul and Barnabas say, we're going to turn to the Gentiles. We're going to turn to all people. This is a message for everybody. So they first went to the Jews, but they didn't exclude the Gentiles. And trouble started following them because some of the Jews from those first synagogues said, you are teaching something different. You are throwing out the ways of Moses, the ways of the Bible, and, and this isn't, this isn't good. And so they persecuted them. They even stoned Paul. And that missionary journey ends. Paul comes back with Barnabas to Antioch and they report everything. That despite the persecution, despite the opposition, there were churches planted in all of these cities. God's work was being done and it was done not just among Jews, but also among the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas reported back in Antioch that God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and the people rejoiced. So this isn't something brand new, but it's, it's been there. It's sort of been accepted. But as there was conflict following Paul around on his missionary journey, now the conflict comes back to kind of the mainland, the home territory where the church first started in Jerusalem. Because when Paul and Barnabas come back to Antioch and they report everything that's happening, word's getting back to Jerusalem about these missionary journeys. And some people, it seems, are very, very unhappy. Like at first, maybe they could tolerate the fact that, you know, occasionally Gentiles are hearing, but it seems with Paul's missionary journey that Jew and Gentile, they're both getting fair shot and all they need to do is 
believe in Jesus. All they need to do is believe in the gospel. Gentiles, this isn't right. And so in the beginning of Acts 15, some troublemakers, um, you kind of class them in the same group as those that followed Paul around on his missionary journey. Um, some troublemakers come to Antioch. And these troublemakers stir up these doubts and these questions, questioning Paul and Barnabas, their ministry. It's not right for you to bring the gospel to the Gentiles and say that all that's necessary is to repent and be baptized, to believe in Jesus and that you are saved. That's not right. There's so much more that is required of them. They need to submit to the laws of Moses. They must be circumcised if they are a man. They need to follow these rules of cleanliness, of kosher, and only then can they be saved. In other words, they must become Jews in toto, uh, completely, and then Jesus, and then it's okay. And that's the question that they're facing. And this question is of supreme importance because it's nothing else than the question of what is necessary? What is necessary for salvation? Did Jesus do everything necessary? Or do we need to add to it? Am I saved by faith in Jesus? Or am I saved by faith in Jesus plus this other stuff that I have to do. And if it's plus this other stuff that you have to do, you're no longer saved by grace. You're no longer saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. This is what Martin Luther stood up for at the time of the Reformation. The gospel was at stake. And so this is of supreme importance. And Martin Luther was ready to face the wrath of the Pope, to face the wrath of the emperor, because if this gospel message becomes a message of gospel plus something else, we've lost the gospel. It's no longer there. So if you miss this, and if you miss what conclusion they come to in Acts 15, it would be all gone that everything that they were building for, the gospel of Jesus being spread, it would no longer be the gospel of Jesus. It would be the works of man back to another pharisaical kind of religion, a religion of human works, not of salvation by grace. So that's the big picture. Thankfully, we know the solution is they recognize the supremacy and the sufficiency of the gospel, that yes, all that is necessary is faith in Jesus, in that good news. All right, so in Acts 15, the troublemakers, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So again, from the get-go, this is a salvation issue. They're not just saying, in order to eat bread with us, in order to come together under a, a common uh, roof, to, to meet together, it wasn't simply a fellowship issue. This was salvation that they were arguing about. And that's what they were saying. So obviously, that's going to immediately raise a lot of questions from people. They're like, what? 
wait, wait a second. That's, that's not the message that we've been proclaiming. That's something completely different. So after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, in other words, this caused quite a ruckus there in Antioch, um, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So the argument comes from Judea into Antioch, and now they're tracing it back to Judea. Where, where did these ideas come from? We need to follow it back to its source, and we need to make sure that this teaching gets resolved because this is detrimental to everything that we're doing. Um, and so they go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. At this time in Jerusalem, the apostles um, kind of seem to be in and out of Jerusalem. Um, just like we've seen Peter, he sometimes was in Jerusalem, sometimes he was out and about. Uh, traveling, evangelizing, strengthening the church in other cities. So it seems was likely the case at this time. The apostles are all doing that. So we don't know which apostles, other than the ones that are going to be mentioned, are currently in Jerusalem at this particular point. We'll hear that James, the brother of Jesus, seems to be recognized as kind of the head, the, the important one. Um, and again, from questions of church hierarchy and the politics, we might want to know what was, be, what was behind that. You know, wasn't Peter the head of the church? Isn't that what everybody believed? But it could simply be uh, the fact that James was the one that was staying put in Jerusalem. The other apostles might have been more the ones that were traveling. And so uh, as long as somebody was always kind of there, you'd always kind of have that one apostle to make sure, okay, we have a question about one of the teachings of Jesus. Is, is this what he said or is it something else? Well, you have an apostle there. There's also reference to the elders. Again, elders are probably kind of the same thing as pastors. They are the ones that are kind of in charge of particular gatherings of the Christians. So apostles are the eyewitnesses, and then the apostles would train elders just as Paul did on his missionary journeys, so that even if the apostles aren't there, there's somebody in charge. We've seen this already when the apostles first set up those table servers that Stephen was a part of, because the apostles had to make sure that, that they were doing their job and they couldn't get bogged down by some of the other stuff that would take them away from being those eyewitnesses of the gospel. Um, so they're going to the apostles, the elders, about this question. They want to know, is this what's being taught? Is there, is there some doubt on the question of salvation? We need to know what's going on. Um, so being sent on their way by the church from Antioch to Judea, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers." So even as Paul and Barnabas are on their way to Jerusalem, um, if my memory serves correct, it's probably about a 250-mile journey between Jerusalem and Antioch. So this is not going to be something you just, all right, let's go to Jerusalem. It's going to be quite a hike. And so there'll be a lot of different stops on the way. And so again, as seems to be part of the, the 
modus operandi of Paul, he likes to check in with how churches are doing um, to encourage them. Yes, he will plant new churches, but he likes to go back to places where the church is already established just to make sure, are there any you know, questions? Are there controversies that need settling? Is, is everybody still on the straight and narrow of that message of what I taught? And so it seems here, when he does so among the Phoenicians and the Sumerians, he shares about the Gentiles. So about the very thing that they're going to talk about, he's bringing news that this is what's happening. And what he's greeted with is not debate, but joy, just like was initially the reaction at Antioch. The people were rejoicing that, yes, the Gentiles are a part of this too. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them in order and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Um, so now they're in Jerusalem, and here is where it seems the seedbed, the source of the controversy. And Luke tells us it was among some believers that this message of salvation, not simply by faith in Jesus, but you have to add to that the law of Moses was coming about, and not just from some believers in Jerusalem, but from what kind of believers? People who were formerly Pharisees. Now, this is both good and bad. It's good because it reminds us that the message of Jesus went out to all of the Jews. Remember, the Jews were not united. We've talked about the Sadducees earlier in, in the book of Acts. The Pharisees, we haven't mentioned so much. They get a lot of bad press in the Gospels. Um, but it seemed that in the early church, the Sadducees were a, a big stumbling block and a source of persecution for the early church. But here we hear that Pharisees were Christians. Pharisees believed in Jesus. Not all Pharisees, but, but some of the Pharisees. The problem was, once a Pharisee, always a Pharisee, that it's hard to pull out the roots of legalism from your heart. That legalism, kind of that idea that the Pharisees lived by this idea that you had to live this pure life, pure according to the laws of Moses that are further delineated by all of the traditions of the fathers. And that if you do all of these things, then you are the, the, the pure Jews. Remember at this time, because the Jews no longer have their own kingdom. They are open to all of the influences of the Roman Empire and the Gentiles. And so the Jews kind of look at some of their people as they've, they've given in to the ways of the world. They've become secularized. They're doing things that we as Jews shouldn't. And so they kind of double down and increase their focus on the law and the traditions of the people but some of them now have heard about Jesus and the good news that Jesus is their savior and they received that message. They believed that message. But like I said, they kept doing what they were doing because that was who they were. And even after they received the gospel message, it was salvation for them. But what about all of that stuff that we were still doing? 
did that stuff matter? Was it important? And some of them, no doubt, yeah, of course it was important. This is the law of Moses. This is not a new God. It is one God, and his revelation is always good, so we need to keep doing those things. And so, Pharisaism. Um, Paul is going to talk about this not so much in the book of Acts, but in his letters, that he was a Pharisee. It's going to come out in the council that they understand there are all of these traditions and rules, but Peter's going to be the one to ask, how many of you were able to do those things perfectly? Any of you? None of us were. And if none of us could do those things perfectly, is that really what you want to put your faith in? your imperfect, incomplete works? No. Why would we put that yoke on someone else, on the Gentiles? That's not at all why they were given in the first place. The the big picture, uh, the sign of the covenant is the sign of what God was doing. God's grace always given to his people. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And after that, then circumcision is given as a sign, a sign of God's promise. So they're taking the gift of God, the laws of Moses. Nobody's saying that that stuff was bad or unimportant, but they made it into something that it was never intended to be. And now... They're trying to put that on the Gentiles. And now that we found the source of that, they're going to get to the bottom of, okay, is this what we believe and teach and confess or something else? All right, here I'm going to pause and we're going to take a detour. A detour because um, the book of Galatians kind of applies here. So the area that Paul and Barnabas were teaching Uh, In the missionary journey, uh, Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe, when I didn't put the map up right now, but that area was all the Roman province of Galatia, okay? And so the book of the letter, Galatians, to the Galatians, is written to these people. So Basically, the consensus uh, of most scholars is that the letter to the Galatians is Paul's first letter. And the main issue in the letter to the Galatians is this very issue, which isn't a surprise because it was an issue that was raised already when he was in the mission field, okay? The, the question of, you know, it's... It comes up specifically because Paul is teaching Gentiles. I don't know if the issue would have been as big if Paul would have just said, all right, this is a gospel for Jews and Jews only, because they already all would have kind of agreed on the law stuff. And now you're just adding Jesus to it. Okay, we get it. But when he goes to the Gentiles and doesn't retrain them to do all of the things that Moses taught, but simply says, believe in Jesus, repent and be baptized, people are like, wait a second, you're changing the rules. That, that's not how we play the game. They can't play it different. They have to play the same way. So Paul, in the letter to Galatians, it's all about this issue. And there's some things that Paul talks about in Galatians 2. We're not going to look at them verbatim and spend time there, but I just draw your attention to them. Because Paul talks about when he gets back to Antioch, that the he uh, opposes um, Peter, 
right? Cephas. That Cephas used to have a fellowship with Gentiles. We saw that with Cornelius, right? He, he, his eyes were open to that fact. But then he slowly reverted back to these old ways, which seems to have come because of the influence of these circumcision party folks, the Judaizers, as they're also called, these people that started to say, wait a second, we're Jews, they're Gentiles, Peter. Aren't you following God's word? Aren't you following the laws of Moses? And Peter, it seems, slowly became influenced by those messages and backed away from that fellowship that he was open to before with the Gentiles. And Paul says when he learns about this, when he finds out, he gets all up in Peter's business, right? This is, again, an important issue. Peter, you cannot back down on this because don't you see what message you're sending? You're sending the message that unless Gentiles become Jews, they can't be saved. They can't become a part of us. Jesus is the way that we are all one body. And so he's fighting against this. So the question that's usually raised when you look at Galatians 2 and Acts 15 is when Paul talks about people coming from James in Galatians 2, and here he talks about some people from Judea came, um, it makes a nice little easy overlap. And so some people think, oh, Galatians 2 and Acts 15 are describing the same event. The problem is that if that's true, there, there are some issues that come up. Because one of the big things is that in Galatians 2, Paul does not specifically refer to this council. He does not refer to the letter that comes as a result of this council. He doesn't refer to the very specific conclusions that they make which would have been a silver bullet for his case. Because as some of the people in Galatia would have said, oh, we're following Peter and James. You know them. They're, they're better apostles than this Paul guy. Because this Paul guy, he, he came in late to the game. He's, he's not really even one of the first people. He doesn't understand Jesus like those guys do. It would have been really good for his argument if he would have said, Peter and James signed up to the very same agreement that I made with them. That is that the Gentiles too are a part of this by grace through faith in Jesus. In Galatians, that would have been a silver bullet argument. And Paul does not make that argument. So there are other reasons, but that, that's kind of the biggest reasons, biggest reason why people generally think Scholars are divided, but generally think that Galatians was written as a whole before this council in Jerusalem, but in the same time period that these questions are brewing. So this was already happening. And Luke, we can kind of understand this. Luke is never, has never been really good about giving solid timelines. So in Acts 15, when there are some men from Judea who have come up and are bringing up problems, um, how long were their debates and arguments in Antioch before everybody went down to Jerusalem? 
Luke doesn't really tell us. It could have been a long time. So there's that issue. The second issue is in Galatians, Paul talks about going to Jerusalem and Acts records different journeys Paul has made to Jerusalem. So there's this one. There's also one in Acts 11. And it's, again, a mixed consensus, but I think a a pretty good consensus that Galatians 2 is usually given to be that Acts 11 time. So when it talks about in Galatians 2, Paul going to Jerusalem, that's Acts 11, which is when he and Barnabas brought that famine relief to Jerusalem. Why couldn't Galatians be after all this, since the Judaizers didn't go away after the council in Jerusalem? They were still a problem throughout the whole new yeah. era. Why couldn't it in Galatians then? Because he talks yeah. about in Galatians there that they once were over here, mm-hmm. and then they fell back. Yeah. It could. So I, I don't want to say that this is the this is has to be this way. But the biggest argument against that is that if those conclusions of the Jerusalem Council had already been made were public knowledge, why would Paul not want to refer to those? Because again, in Galatians, in Galatians, some of the people are saying, no, no, this is this is from apostles. Not okay, not Paul, but Peter. He's doing the same thing. So if Paul could have said, here's what happened when Peter and James and Paul and the other apostles and the elders got together in Jerusalem, this is the conclusion that we all made, one accord. So you're saying that those guys support you? Here's hard evidence. No, they don't. And so if he could have said that, I would think that would just like close all of those debates. You are correct, of course, that the Judaizer issue, it's not going to go away just because of this council. It's still going to be out there. So from that standpoint, yeah, this is always going to be um, an issue, but it's, it's primarily because he doesn't refer to the conclusions of this council in the way that it came about. Yeah. Okay. So that's out there. Um, and it can inform your reading of the book of Galatians. Again, to know this controversy was was real and it was dangerous to the church. It was dangerous before this happened because Paul had already faced it out in the mission field. But now it seemed when he came home, it was coming from a different place. It was coming from Judea, from Jerusalem, and they needed to make sure that this was fixed and set straight. Okay, so we've seen what the question is in verse 6. The apostles, the elders, they're all gathered together to consider this matter. So this was, sounds like a pretty open um, meeting. This isn't something behind closed doors that they're ashamed of or unafraid of. They want answers and they want this to be as clear as day that everybody's on the same page. Um, after there had been much debate, so... There's a lot of stuff here that Luke doesn't record, but he gets to kind of the crux of the matter. Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of gospel and believe. This is the Cornelius episode from Acts 11. And God knows, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? 
but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus, just as they will. So he goes back to Acts 11 and 12, his experiences with Cornelius, and he said, this was from God. I did not go out to convert Gentiles. You know who I am. I knew who I am, but God made it clear that this is what I had to do. And when I shared that word with them, God made it clear that the Holy Spirit was given to them. No law of Moses here. No circumcision involved. This is what God has done. We can't go back on what God has done. So, it's, uh, it's basically saying, you know, all of those, those laws and those traditions, we might think those are important, but God has definitively acted here to show us that there's no doubt this is his will. This isn't just something that we were thinking of doing. Jim? Well, we know that the Ten Commandments came down from mm-hmm. Mount Sinai and from God. Mm-hmm. Where did these laws of they're a part of that, but the, the more problematic part is not the laws themselves, but the traditions that grew up around them, and then the teaching that was associated with them. That, that if, if by the actions of the people, or well, that the actions of the people, that was ultimately what God was interested in, when God ultimately wanted their hearts. And so that's why Jesus kind of says, says some of the things that he does about, you know, you're, you're so concerned about keeping the commandment, but you don't even know what the commandment says. So you've heard it said, you shouldn't, you should not commit adultery. I say to you, anybody that has ever looked lustfully at another person in their eyes, they've already committed adultery. How can Jesus speak like that? Because the commandment wasn't simply about this outward thing. It was about the condition of their heart. Do they fear, love, and trust God above all things? And the answer is, as hard as we try, none of us do those things perfectly. But if we fear, love, and trust God, we would know and listen to the fact that he gives us forgiveness. And he offers us us, us a way who are impure in hearts to have our hearts cleaned. And ultimately, all of that Old Testament stuff then is pointing to and fulfilled in what Jesus does. And that's the message now that that they are proclaiming to the world. So it's not that those things were bad, it's that they got misused and misunderstood so that they became something that they were never intended to be. And the heart was lost. All that mattered was, are you doing the right thing? Are you doing enough? And that that wasn't the point. Circumcision was a, was a huge deal, yeah, because it was a visible sign. Um, you, there, there, was, there was a very easy way to see, are you following the law of Moses? Are you not? Um, because it was, it was visible on their, their body. Um, the other things, you know, okay, people may not be able to see if you're doing all of those things or following him to a T, but again, it, it, was, it was all about the attitude and the pride in who they were. I'm a Jew and I'm proud of it. And again, that's, that's the complete wrong attitude of we're, we're the humble children of God, that he adopts us, not because we're worthy, but because of his loving kindness and grace. So that was necessary for their salvation because Christ had not come yet, 
following following the covenant was important. I don't um, what the the way that you talk about it. What's necessary is faith, and faith in the covenant, faith in the God of the covenant, should lead them to do the things of the covenant. But just doing the covenant, do you see what's missing? Faith, yeah. you know. So depending on where you're coming from or what what. It is important, yes, but their their hearts. That's that's the biggest question. I can understand where there would be some <clears throat> backpedaling because forever you've been known as the chosen people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, you got to let these other folks in. Yeah, and it, it's. I can see where that's like, oh yeah, okay. And and it was there in the Old Testament because again, as as is going to come out. God's been talking about the Gentiles this whole time. Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to who? All nations. The Gentiles are all nations. God chose Abraham not to exclude everybody else, but he would be the chosen vessel that this message goes out that everybody's blessed because he's going to be a part of that seed. You, they, like I said, once once that once they lose their kingdom and their status, I mean, uh, again, they weren't perfect at this at any time in their history. Just like we're not, you know, the gospel is for all people. How good are we at living that kind of life that it's open to everybody? Rather than, I like these people. I'm uncomfortable around those, and I really don't want to even. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they they are because those like the prophecies of Isaiah, when all nations will stream to the holy mountain of God and they will all be taught by God. It's just in that vision, they're kind of importing. They're all going to be Jews like us, not they're all going to come to the salvation of God. You know, they, they, they see it as something being about them rather than about God and his grace. But even then, they, they get that. So I don't think they ever excluded them. It's just how they interpreted that. I, I think they missed the point. Um, because Paul and Peter, they both, they both had to make that journey themselves, and it, and it wasn't easy. Um, Paul maybe had an easier chance because he grew up in, in a very different world um, and learned the Phariseeism. Um, but yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, so there's actually Lutherans that are not German these days. Yeah. The gospel has gone out to all people. Yeah. So Peter has his say, and the conclusion is, by my experience, this is what God is doing. Gentiles, you're part of it. When they get to Paul and Barnabas, Luke says almost nothing, because we've 
been following along with Paul and Barnabas. He doesn't need to repeat their story. Just go back and read the last two chapters and you know what they're going to say. But Luke does emphasize that God confirmed what they're doing with miraculous signs and wonders. Again, miraculous signs and wonders in Acts are proof that what we're doing is in line with with what God is doing because God is ultimately the source of these things. So Peter, he's all aboard with this. Paul and Barnabas, they're all aboard. Um, Note Barnabas is given first rather than Paul here. Barnabas is the one that had the earlier connection to Jerusalem, not, um, well, Paul did, but not with the Christian church. Again, as Bethany pointed out, his first relationship with the Christian church was one of persecution. Um, So Barnabas seems like he becomes the spokesperson in Jerusalem, which we've just been used to the opposite happening. Uh, Paul spoke in Antioch. Um, And then in verse uh, 13, James comes up. And James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that is Peter, he uses his his Hebrew name. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. That verb there, visited the Gentiles, is a very profound um, word. This is usually a word of, of salvation, of redemption, when God comes into the story at very key moments, it's, it is said that he visited his people. Um, so I put a couple of references. There are, there are more in the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. But if you check up some of those, you'll see that God visiting his people is God recalling his covenant, his promise, and bringing redemption and salvation to his, to, to his people. So James has already given away his answer here when he says that how God first visited the Gentiles. This, this is a big thing. Um, to take from them a people uh, for his name. Again, this is also loaded language, to, to call them a people. The, the, the people of Israel were called a people. Um, there is uh, the prophecies uh, of Isaiah that you were once my people, but now you're not my people. Uh, my people, this is, this is a, a part of that covenant relationship. And here James is saying that he's going to take from the Gentiles, uh, to be his people, uh, for his name, his name, salvation, all that goes with it. And with these, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. So the, the big thing here is that James is saying, okay, you've heard Peter and Barnabas and Paul talk about their experience, but I'm saying the prophets agree. So this is not a new thing. This is not a brand new revelation. God has already revealed to us in Amos's time, and we would say, and even before that, that the inclusion of the Gentiles among his people, that was always part of the plan. And we should welcome it rather than try to fight against it or put more stumbling blocks in the way. Because just as Peter said, hey, look, if we're saved by the grace of God, they're 
saved by the grace of God, not by this other stuff. So in conclusion, he says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from the ancient generations, Moses has uh, had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. This ending seems a little bit uh, uh, kind of off for us because we're like, wait a second. He, he seems to agree that they don't need to do anything else, that they are saved by grace, by faith in Jesus. If they turn to God, we should accept them. Why then did he just add some extra stuff to this list? Stuff about idols and strangling and blood and, and sexual immorality. Um, Okay. Okay. It's the fruit of faith. It's it's even it is that, but there's there's a little more specificity to it. Okay. But the confusion could be: Is he saying if they do these things, then they're then they're saved, or is is there some, is there? Okay. Okay. I mean, it's kind of like you don't throw it back in their face. Uh, like, uh, well, we don't have to do this. Mm. It's more of a matter of maybe not trying to offend them. Yeah. Offended by this new freedom that they have. Right. So judging from especially what, what is going to be said here and also what Paul says in some of his letters in 1 Corinthians and Romans, it's an issue of conscience. So they have freedom in Christ, but that freedom can be used in such a way that it, it turns away and offends other people, their Jewish brothers in faith. And so it seems like they're giving a benefit of the doubt to the Jews that are still struggling with this. Like I said, they grew up their whole life. Generations of their family did these things, and they're not all of a sudden going to stop doing them. And, and it's clear what the relationship of them is all about to their salvation. You are not saved through these things, but it could still be troubling to them. These specific laws, it seems, goes back to Leviticus 17 and 18. Uh, if you look at those sections in your Bible, you'll see that there are sections about idols and blood and, and marriage. Um, so the sexual immorality seems to be talking about like mixed marriage and uh, marriage, marriage outside of the faith and, and whatnot. So the stuff isn't just like pulled out of the blue, um, but it is that recognition that these are going to be sore points in the early days of the faith. Now, to most of us today, it's water under the bridge. This, this is meaningless um, because we, we're not in that context anymore. But the ideas are still kind of appropriate, that we are free in Christ. Um, to, you want to have a tattoo? Go get a tattoo. You want to drink a beer? Go drink a beer, wine, what you know, whatever. You want to do those things. There is freedom in Christ, but those things can be troublesome to other people. And so we should keep that in mind, not so that those things become legalistic, 
so that we have to do those things, but so that we are aware of our witness to people around us. Uh, baptism is one of the, the ways that I can easily talk about this. As Lutherans, we can pour water. We can also dunk with the best of them. Now, you probably haven't seen a lot of Lutheran immersive baptisms, um, but we can do that because for us, how you baptize is not the important thing, nor is the person who baptizes it. So whether a, pers- a lay person does it or a, a pastor, uh, in good order, we do it with a pastor in a, in a congregational setting in a church service because of what's going on there. They're becoming a part of the body of Christ and we all have a duty to them. So we like that, but it doesn't have to be that way for a baptism to be good. And so, however, when I come up to a Baptist or somebody who says, you must immerse in order for that baptism to be good, I'd be like, nope, sorry, we're only pouring water on that baby's head. Why? Because I want you to know that it's not our action that is the point of salvation. It is not how we do this that makes it happen. It is God's word joined to this water, and that's the most important thing. So when somebody tries to be legalistic and pin that legalism to like salvation, just like Paul, we would sort of rebel against that and say, don't you dare, we will not follow that. But among people who understand, all right, in baptism, what's most important? Who's, who's working? God is at work through his word, through that water. So does it matter if I baptize this baby by sprinkling water or immersing? No, it doesn't matter at all. It's baptism. That's Yeah, and Luther, both, yeah, both, both forms of baptism are, yeah, 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 and the, and, and what, what has tended to happen among Lutherans is by and large, we pour water because of our context where we are among people who, especially the immersion, it's not just about immersion, it's the theology that goes along with that. And we as Lutherans don't want to confuse others that, hey, it looks like a duck. It quacks like a duck. You guys all agree on this stuff. No. For us, we believe salvation is a sacrament, something that God does. And for, by and large, those that do immersion baptism, it's, this is a testimony of the faith that is in me, a work that I do. All right. Conclusion of this. They send out a letter and the letter gives exactly what what, uh, James has has said, that you need to understand that all of us have reached this agreement. We're of of one voice, in one accord. So if there were people that dissented before, this is amazing. He speaks as though everybody agreed on it, um, which never happens in any meeting, in any church council. You never get 100% unanimous but they, they say in the letter that everybody is of one accord and they don't, you don't hear more about 
the specific people from this area. So James, Peter, Paul, they all agree about this. And they send this letter with witnesses there from Jerusalem, not just Paul and Barnabas, um, Titus and, uh, uh, not Titus, um, Silas and Judas, who go back to Antioch and say, here's the letter, here's what we agreed on. It's what you guys knew all along, that the Gentiles are saved by grace through faith. And we're here, just so you know, you don't have to just trust Paul and Barnabas on this. It's what everybody agreed to. And then from here on, Paul and Barnabas are like, you know, this is, this is awesome. This, it's, it's kind of, uh, it boosts their spirits. And so they're going to be ready to go back on another missionary journey. But before they do that, there's one small controversy. Uh, this guy, John Mark, the one that went on the first missionary journey, he's the cousin of Barnabas. He deserted them when they went from Cyprus to Pamphylia. And Barnabas wants John Mark to come along. Paul says, nope, that guy's a quitter. And I don't want a quitter to come with me. It's pretty, it's, it's a little bit... Um, like you can see a conflict there. But the resolution, they, they do come to a resolution. Okay, Barnabas, you like John so much, you take him. I'm going to take Silas and we're both going to go our way. So what could have been a really ugly situation just after they reached this great of one heart and one mind and one accord, um, God uses it and now two different missionary groups are going to go out. Um, and, you know, so... Yeah, there might have been a personality conflict or something, but it wasn't as though um, Paul's kicking out Barnabas or kicking out somebody else from the church. It's just, we didn't work very well together. I want somebody else to work with. You seem to like him. He's your family. So you take him and uh, you, you go do your thing. So the council leads back to more mission. And this time the mission is going to be even bigger and better than has happened before, the second missionary journey. All right, we front-loaded that, but we got it done. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah. Oh, so that's interesting. Um, if you look at your Bibles, I, yeah. Is it in the footnotes? Somebody miscounted. Yeah. So verse, verses were not original to the Bible. They were added uh, around the age of the printing press. Like we talked about this so that people would know how to, you know, come together when we're all in Bible study. Where are we? We're at chapter 3, verse 16. Um, and so this happens occasionally in our Bibles that the old tradition, King James Version, you know, that, that goes back to that era, that has some verses that, in our day, now that we have a lot more manuscripts of the Bible than they did in their day, we've kind of said, these aren't in the earliest manuscripts. So it seems that somewhere along the way, they got added. Verse 34 is interesting because it says Silas comes back, right? It says something like that. Because in the previous verse, it says that Silas goes to Jerusalem, doesn't it? Okay, it says that he decided to stay because the very next thing they're going to be talking about is how Paul is going to take Silas and go on these the next missionary journey. And so if Silas went to Jerusalem, how's Paul going to take Silas along with him? 
And so the fact that that verse isn't in some of the earliest manuscripts, I can come up with a good reason why somebody could have added it later because they're like, wait a second, it just says that Silas left to Jerusalem and now Paul's going to go with him on a missionary journey, but he's not even there. So it, it gets added. It doesn't change the theology or anything like that. It could be that that verse you know, got lost early in transition, but it's not in earlier manuscripts. And so somebody found it in one of their manuscripts and they copied it. It could be that somebody added it, but whatever, when they were counting up verses and putting verses of the Bible, that was verse 34. Our more modern scholars, they're like, that probably wasn't the original text. They take it out. So it goes now 33, 35. And you look at your Bible, where'd 34 go? Most good scholars won't just like delete it and hide it from you. They'll put it at the bottom of the page and then add a note saying, most early manuscripts probably didn't have this verse or didn't. And so that's why we've taken it out of the text. So in the King James Version, it will be part of the text. But newer versions like the NIV, ESV, it will be a footnote on the bottom of your page. Thank you for listening to this Bible study. If you have questions or comments about something you've heard, let us know by leaving us a comment on our webpage, stpaulslutheran.net, and look for the menu About Us. Our Bible class meets Sunday mornings at 9.50 a.m. at 1780 Career Center Road, Bourbonnet, Illinois, 60914. We'd love to see you there. Come and grow together in Christ with us.